Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode six in a series that I began, what was it, just a week ago? This is, that's a lot of ground to cover. Six? Wow. Uh, and it's, the series has been really powerful, I know for me, and I'm hoping for you, but it's called Daring to Do is Stanley Dale. Uh, the, the idea is sort of to reinvigorate the church of Jesus Christ with that old school passion for missions. It's some, somehow been lost over the past 20, 30 years, maybe, maybe longer, but we've lost a fervor that used to be there. And I'm not saying it's not in any of us, nor I'm not saying that it's not in the church at large in a measure. It's just that it used to pulsate within the church. There have been seasons of church history where the church itself had one singular agenda. If you look at the early church, the coming of Christ was such a key thing. Even when they would greet each other, they'd say Maranatha. In other words, to greet each other, they were saying, he's coming. <laughs> and it's a constant reminder, if he's coming, how should we then live? If he's coming, then our lives should conform to that reality. And that lost soul, how does that matter? If he's coming, how do I think about that lost soul? That lost soul is in jeopardy if I don't do something. If I don't share the hope that lies within me with this lost soul, then they are doomed. So that constant idea of Maranatha being on the lips of the saints, being in the forefront of their minds, is the basis of the early church. And then that gets lost, and then it gets resurrected again. And so what we see right around 1900, we see a resurrection, a missionary revival take place that is going to create a surge of focus once again on the coming of Christ. And it's interesting, once the coming of Christ is focused on, then missions explodes. Isn't that fascinating? And so in a strange way, you would say, what do we need as the church? Because missions isn't exploding today. Here we are, a mission society, and even we inside this room, which are more inclined to think these thoughts than most people, right? If you just take a cross-section of the church, we're a very high concentration of ready Christians here. And even we are a little <clears throat> scared about what we're talking about here, Okay. That's, that should show us something. We are lacking a heat index that is just like, I'm ready, send me. Now, even if you're saying, send me to the Lord, it doesn't mean he sends you right away. He has to prepare too. There is a preparation involved in the sending. You know, Don and Carol Richardson are gonna go seven years before they end up in Irian Jaya. And yet they were ready. They became that fretting lion in the cage like, Lord, please. And so whatever that heat index is, I think we need to raise it in the church of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, start with us. 
This is part six, and it's called Dreamer of Dreams. So I've, I've introduced you to Robert A. Jaffrey uh, already in the past. I like this guy. And uh, we, we're calling him the man for the dark mountains. And so this territory of Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, is a dark territory. Not that light doesn't shine. It's that it's dark spiritually. It's a spiritually dead place that the gospel has never reached. And it's very difficult to reach it. Even to get into the interior of Papua New Guinea is treacherous, and you can lose your life just trying to get there, let alone survive when you get there, when you're dealing with uh, tribes that are not that mm, pleasant uh, to be around, that are actually looking at you as a threat and are used to killing all outsiders. And so as a result, it makes it rather challenging to know how to reach this people. And here we have someone like R.A. Jaffrey who's ideally suited for this. He smirks at things like that. He's like, oh, this is a dream. Great. I didn't know there were lost souls there. Let's go after them. And so this is the book, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's a book by A.W. Tozier. It's called Let My People Go. And it's the life of R.A. Jaffrey, and it's fantastic. Uh, this is another book that I would highly recommend, and it's called Evidence Not Seen, and it's uh, Darlene Dibler Rose. Uh, her husband, Russell Dibler, was the first one to trek in as a missionary into the interior. And she's going to be the first woman ever to go into the interior uh, so of Papua New Guinea. So pretty amazing story. That's during World War II. Uh, it, is, it is a marvelous book. <clears throat> and then this, uh, The Dreamer of Dreams. So here the name of this message is Dreamer of Dreams, right? So the dreamer of dreams is R.A. Jaffrey, and this comes from a, a concept and, a, and a, a statement that Darlene Dibler is going to write in her biography about him, and that's what I'm going to read to you. Darlene Dibler says this, just day, days later I read the verse, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. That's Joel 2.28. I closed the book of Joel and arose from my knees. Walking into the hall, I saw before me a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. There before me sat the old man dreaming his dreams. So that's uh, Robert A. Jaffrey. His eyes were closed, but I knew he wasn't sleeping. One hand rested on, on an open atlas, the other on the arm of the wing chair that had belonged to his father. I knew that by faith he and his Lord were moving down the great chain of islands known as the Netherlands East Indies. Sensing my presence, Dr. Jaffrey looked up and smiled, the smile of one who had sweet communion with the Lord. I was sure that God had, has acquiesced to all, had acquiesced to all Dr. Jaffrey's proposals concerning reaching the lost, for this too was the great burden of the heart of God. How often I had heard Dr. Jaffrey remind the Lord of the verse, concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I looked down at the very familiar atlas. Had we not traced the rapid advance of the Japanese on these pages? What other places had fallen under their dominion since that fateful day when the island of Salibs had been overrun. His mind was full of warfare too, but not of the same warfare that dominated my thoughts. I knelt beside the chair and listened to his dream. So just context, they're in the Pacific, and so the Japanese, after bombing Pearl Harbor, are going to immediately turn their attention to taking over all the islands of the Pacific. So they're going to dominate the Pacific. And so one of those is going to be... Uh, Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, uh, Netherlands, East Indies. It has a lot of names, obviously. And so the Japanese are coming, and so her thoughts are completely 
uh, on that. His thoughts are on this atlas. And that's why it's, it's pretty neat to just see how this man was. This is his elderly years. He's not going to live much longer after this. This is uh, R.A. Jaffrey speaking. Lassie, this is our task. These are the areas we must enter when this war is over. When this war is over? It was but beginning. How much more of its fears and anxieties, separations and grim tales of death must we experience before it was over? I suddenly saw Dr. Jaffrey as I had not seen him before. Old enough to dream dreams, young enough to see visions. To Dr. Jaffrey, our experiences were but passing events that never altered God's program of reaching the unreached. Never could they mar the old man's dream. With steady hand and the voice of one assured of victory, he traced upon the map our coming campaign, the Natuna and the Nambas Islands, Sumatra ferreting out and mopping up these pockets of satanic resistance in the central and southern districts, the final liberation of the Punans, of Borneo's hinterland, Bali, firmly held in the grip of the enemy, would be freed, its iron gates yielding under the onslaught of faith and prayer. He paused to give praise to our commander-in-chief for spiritual battles fought and won in some of the smaller islands, then move on, moved on to Mosul, the Isle of Demons, the Bird's Head of New Guinea, the Whistle Lakes area, the Zwart and Memoramo river valleys, down either side of the Karsten's backbone, and at last his finger came to rest over the Grand Valley of the Ballium. This, Lassie, is our task. Listen, do you hear it? the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. It is the noise of the marching army of young men and women whom God is preparing for the day of spiritual battle and occupation of these areas. I realized how little I know of what makes a true missionary statesman, of a faith that never staggers at the promise of God, no matter how incredible to the, un to the natural man its fulfillment seems, of a trust in the unchanging one who keeps the heart at rest and unperturbed in a changing world of a burning love that counts not life dear unto itself, but is expendable for God, and of a vision that is never dimmed. Were not these the qualities that characterized pioneers down through the centuries? Were not these the elements that gave the drive, the impetus that launched the missionary campaign to the Netherlands East Indies in 1929, the year of depression when others were retrenching on all sides? Were not these also the characteristics of the godly men and women in the homeland whom, who knew a God whose supply is not modified by the world's economic situation? It's the middle of the Great Depression. And this man, R.A. Jaffrey, could care less. This is God's program. This is what he's doing. Well, you do know that the Japanese are coming in and invading the island, right? You do know that they're going to put us in concentration camps. How in the world are we supposed to fulfill God's program? God's program is going to be fulfilled. So when the war is over, we'll get to this. In other words, his mentality was, it doesn't matter if we're in a Great Depression. It doesn't matter if the Japanese are swarming. We have lost souls that we need to focus on. We don't turn and focus on ourselves and our survival. We have lost souls that we need to focus on. If there was ever a time to be thinking about yourself, I think this ranks up as a pretty good one. Your homeland, which supports you with finances, is in a depression. <laughs> the Japanese... And their shock troops are on the way down. And by the way, you never want to run into the Japanese shock troops. The way they will treat you is so bad, so evil, so mean. <laughs> it's going to be bad, guys. And that's what's coming. And R.A. Jaffrey is sitting there having a dream about reaching all the lost around him. And there's something about that. And that's what's startling Darlene Dibler as well. She's like, so that's a missionary statesman. 
So that's what it's like to never be rocked and shaken by the world that changes around you, but to recognize God has a program. God is doing something. And it isn't just trying to stop the Japanese. It isn't just trying to deal with great depressions. He is after lost souls. Are we? Here beside me was the man who had spied out the land and was the first, with the first wave of troops to go ashore in Macassar to stake a claim for God. Once again, the world was enveloped in sorrow and difficulties, but these dark days of war were to Dr. Robert Alexander Jaffrey, the great missionary general, but days of retreat in which to plan the strategy of yet greater conquests. It's a great quote. Darlene Dibler also says, I dropped my head on the arm of the chair and found that there were tears on my cheeks. That afternoon, I reminded God that I was available, and never would I call my task common or mundane if it were a part of the culmination of the old man's dream. For that afternoon, I had seen a vision of the unfinished task. I think for many of us, we struggle. Like, we could read that, but do we have that dream? Do we see it? There's an unfinished task that has burdened so many men and women of God throughout the ages. And they sense it. And it's, it's the deep heart cry of their life. Oh, Lord, raise up workers for the harvest. Oh, Lord, reach these lost. And if you desire, please reach them through me. Whatever that is, it is something that we need to see cultivated in us. And you see Darlene, even this woman who is on the mission field, sending her husband into the interior, sacrificing personally, she sees a man who has the vision even more clearly than she does. And as a result, it just ignites that fire within her. We have lost that. We don't have the great missionary generals anymore that come back to the United States and begin to speak with the booming voice of what's taking place in yonder hills across the, you know, the world. And as a result, we've lost that vision of the unfinished task. The, ever creature, the every creature vision. So this is going to switch to a different man now. And another one of my heroes, uh, Reese Howells. You know, I have a son named Reese that should give you some indication of my impression of this man. Uh, but he, I'm going to call him the man of action. And one of everything about these three men that I'm going to go through today, Robert Jaffrey, Reese Howells, and A.B. Simpson, is all three of them are like, we need to do something. We cannot sit here in our, on our thumbs. We need to do something. And it was a practical theology that they had. In other words, if this is true, then I need to act. Many men's and women's theology leads them to think grand thoughts but not live grand lives. And any theology that leads you to hang out in a dusty study with a whole bunch of dusty books and think lofty thoughts but then live a dead life, something needs to you know, call into question that theology. Because everything about God is action. Do you know that the Hebrew language and the, and the Koine Greek are both based on action verbs? The root of every word in both languages is an action. Isn't that interesting? It's a moving language. It's an action-based language. And that's what the Spirit of God is going to carry along the writers of the Bible to reveal this message in is an action language or two action languages. So the man of action, Reese Howells. So Norman Grubb, this is one of the greatest biographies. It seems like I say that every time I mention a biography, but uh, it is a great biography. And uh, Reese Howell's Intercessor is what it's called. 
and this man is going to live parallel with these same times, okay? So he's going to go through World War II, but he's going to be back in Great Britain, and the stories are, are amazing. The autumn of 1934 was a wonderful time in the college. So he had a, a college. It was not altogether different than Ellerslie. It was like a prayer college slash Bible college, sort of hard to describe what it is, and uh, pretty amazing stories that come out of there. But the autumn of 1934 was a wonderful time in the college. Mr. Howells was spending many hours in the early morning alone with God, going through the four Gospels and getting great light from the Holy Spirit on the life and person of the Savior. He seemed to be coming to the morning meeting straight from God's presence. Mrs. Howells, who knew the Spirit's ways with him, was conscious, conscious that the Lord was preparing him for something. On Boxing Day morning, which is December 26, the Spirit began speaking to him even earlier than usual before he had arisen. Mrs. Howells, who was always awake, heard him repeating, who was also awake, sorry, heard him repeating, every creature, every creature. At three o'clock that morning, he was so conscious that God wanted to say something definite to him that he dressed and went to his room downstairs. There the Lord asked him if he believed the Savior meant his last command to be obeyed. I do, he replied. Then do you believe that I can give the gospel to every creature? Without stretching a point, he answered, I believe you can. You are God. I am dwelling in you, the Lord then said. Can I be responsible for this through you? For years, Mr. Howells had been praying for the gospel to go to the world. Before he went to Africa, the Spirit brought before him God's promise to his son in Psalm 2.8. He had not let a day pass without praying that the Savior would make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It was in willingness to be, in some measure, the answer to his own prayers that he had accepted the call to Africa. Then while in Africa, he had been struck by chapter 9 of With Christ in the School of Prayer by Andrew Murray, which comments on the Savior's word in Matthew 9, 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Murray had pointed out on the strength of this verse that the number of missionaries on the field depends entirely on the extent to which someone obeys that command and prays out the laborers. And the Lord had called Mr. Howells to do this. That, in turn, had been one of, the, uh, one of God's ways of preparing him for the further commission to start a Bible college. Thus, for years, he had been a man with a world vision. But this new word from God was to lay direct responsibility on him. It was no mere assent to the general command to preach the gospel to every creature. It meant, if accepted, that he and all who took it with him would be bondservants for the rest of their days to this one task— to intercede, to go, to serve others who go, to be responsible for seeing that every creature hears the gospel. The way this commission was interpreted to Mr. Howells in concrete terms was that in the next 30 years, the Holy Spirit would find 10,000 channels from all over the world, men and women, whom he would enter and would allow, who would allow him to take complete possession of them for this task, even as years before he had taken possession of his servant. Reese Howells came out from his room a man with a vision and a burden which never left him, the every creature vision. He brought it before the staff and students, and New Year's Day, 1935, was given to prayer and fasting. The presence of God was felt in a very real way, and while they did not minimize the enormity of the task, a deep and growing conviction took possession of many that God was going to do a new thing. It was a conviction that as really as the Savior came down to the world to make an atonement for every creature, so the Holy Spirit had come down to make that atonement known to every creature, and that he would complete it in their generation. In a sense, the world began to be their parish. They began to be open for God to lay any prayer on them that would further the reaching of every creature with the gospel. 
They became responsible to intercede for countries and nations as well as for individual missionaries and societies. The college truly became a house of prayer for all peoples, Isaiah 56, 7. One form that, it, that this prayer warfare took was intercession on a national and international level concerning anything that affected world evangelization. Every creature must hear, therefore the do doors must be kept open. Their prayers became strategic. They must face and fight the enemy wherever he was opposing freedom to evangelize. God was preparing an instrument, a company to fight world battles on their knees. So back when I was in missionary school, this deeply stirred me. And so I had a wave of response to this in my life. It was like, I want to pray for these things. I want to go. And then they, it fades. I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life where it fades and suddenly your vision is more local and it loses the global. And whenever you go through a survival season, you know, where you're, you're really hit hard and you're just trying to make it, if you're trying to pay bills, it's very difficult to deal with the every creature vision. And the every creature vision can just get discarded off to the side. And one of the things that I deeply appreciated about Reese House is he refused to let anything take him from his vision take him from this passion. And so he believed that God wanted to reach every creature through us, the church. So therefore, he consecrated himself to that purpose. He's like, anyone that wants to join me, I'm ready to do this for Jesus. And so let's pray that God would awaken 10,000 channels in the next 30 years to reach every people, every nation, tribe, and tongue with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that can stir us but we can also lose it. And so it's very, very, it's imperative that we grasp this and recognize that the battle seems to be over holding on to it and being moved by it unto a place of action because every single one of us agrees with it theologically. But have we seen the vision of the unfinished task? Do we have tears in our eyes like Darlene Dibler as we lean against that chair as the great missionary general makes his statements with his finger going down uh, over the islands of Papua New Guinea, and we say, I see it too. Could you imagine being able to lean up against the throne room of grace, the big chair in heaven, and have God trace his finger across the world and say, will you carry the same dream I have? I have a vision to reach the lost. Will you share it with me? You see, this is, this is the parallel, and Reese Howells is beginning to share it. R.A. Jaffrey was sharing it. Darlene Dibler was catching it. Are we willing to catch this vision? The promise to the sons. This is Psalm 2.8. This is a, a burden that the missionary mindset, just think about this concept. You know, as the Moravian missionaries are fading away in the distance on their ship, and they're heading off to an island to indenture themselves as slaves, so they could reach the slave island with the gospel. And as they're, they're pulling away, they raise their fists into the air and say, is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? It's like they're giving up their life. They'll never see their family again, but their question or their statement is, is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? So Psalm 2 is a you know, of course, all the Bible is going to reveal Christ. Psalm 2 is very specifically about the anointed one, or the Christos, as we'd say it in the Greek, the Messiah, as we would say it in the Hebrew. And so, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. 
So what is it that the Christ is going to receive from the Father? He is going to receive the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth for his possession. And so as as those that have been saved by our Christ, as those that have been adopted in, as those who share in his inheritance, what what do we participate in? The gaining of his reward. For his glory, for his sake, we want to see him get precisely what he deserves. The missionary revival. Now, I don't have a date for this. For whatever reason, it's a zone of time. It's like right in the late 1800s. So 1890s, late, and then early 1900s. In this zone, there's going to be an upsurge in the Church of Jesus Christ for missions. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to, it's interesting because there's an upsurge right here, and there's going to be another upsurge in the mid-30s. And what's interesting about both of those is there's going to be a world war that follows both of those, (laughs) which is interesting uh, to just note uh, in historical context. But so here's our guy, the man to raise up workers. Uh, And this is A.B. Simpson, who I've mentioned multiple times. He's going to be sort of the founder of something called the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is going to be what inspires R.A. Jaffrey. A.W. Tozier was a part of uh, that movement. Uh, uh, Russell Dibler, of course, is going, and and Darlene Dibler are going to be a part of this movement. And so we're going to see little tastes of that. It had a big impact on Papua New Guinea. And so ultimately, even though A.B. Simpson never went to Papua New Guinea, all that he is doing is ultimately going to be like a wave that is cast all throughout the earth to reach the lost, the unreached. So here's A.W. Tozier's uh, statement. This is in the book that he writes about Robert Jaffrey, but he's going to be talking very specifically about A.B. Simpson. About this time, speaking about the end, you know, the beginning of 1900s, about this time a missionary revival had begun to make itself felt here and there in the United States and Canada. A.B. Simpson was one of its leaders, partly the cause and partly the result of it. Under his inspiration, the school, indeed the entire Alliance movement, flamed with missionary zeal. All human learning, all theology was directed to this one channel, the hope of Christ's return, which had spread among the churches with something like prairie fire rapidity, gave added urgency to the missionary passion. This was especially true of the doctrine as Simpson interpreted it. According to his view, the second coming was contingent upon world evangelization. Christ could not return until the gospel had been preached among all nations for a witness. The conclusion was plain. The Lord's return could actually be hastened by zealous missionary activity. One had a direct bearing upon the other. One theme ran through the preaching and writings of Simpson. Bring back the king. Why say ye not a word about bringing back the king? Was a reproachful text often used in those days to arouse slumbering interest and to incite zeal for world evangelization? Though many learned eyebrows were raised at this interpretation, its practical effect upon its adherence was terrific. Nice exegesis and sober analysis would never want for advocates. Mere Bible teaching could be done by others. Simpson and his alliance refused to be satisfied with the dry bones of eschatology. In theology, they were pragmatists. Their doctrines must work. They must result in practical activity in line with the purposes of God for this age. This is what they believed and what they taught, and their teaching had amazing power to catch and hold and direct the spiritual energies of increasing numbers of men and women. So whenever you get into an eschatological statement, you can get into some hairy territory when you're trying to bond the, Christ, bond the church of Jesus Christ together. But it's interesting because A.B. Simpson's view was very simple. 
to bring and to hasten the returning of Christ, we need to reach every creature. If that's God's agenda, then that is what we are able to participate in. So let's have the common vision. Let's go after it. And it's interesting because this worked. This very concept of reaching every creature to hasten the day of his return spiked interest in missions. It's just really fascinating. So when you study it just practically, you're like, wow, that works. I'm going to call this responsive theology. When you teach something that actually moves people to action or to godly action, it has an impact. Now, we may have varying views on A.B. Simpson's conclusions about that. Is that the right way of saying it? Is that the way it should be? I mean, whenever, when everyone has heard the gospel, does that just suddenly initiate the coming of Christ? Those are debates. And as he says, all, all sorts of theologians you know, raise their eyebrows like, where, where does he get that? At the same time, what you see is a troop of believers that loves Jesus, wants to see his glory made manifest, wants to fulfill the Great Commission, wants to do exactly as the Bible says, which is to reach every creature for Christ. And you know, so practically what you have is a very, very good response. So responsive theology, it changes the world. Matthew 9. When he saw the multitudes, speaking of Jesus, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So again, responsive theology is going to see this and say, if laborers are going to be sent out, we need to pray. And so as a result, the church begins to pray and feels an imperative to pray so that laborers are raised up and sent. Is that good theology or bad theology? Isn't that a funny statement? Because some of you could say, well, if laborers are going to be sent, that's a sovereign move of God. And here's what's interesting. To get you to pray and even understand that scripture and to be moved is the movement of God in the first place. So God is the predecessor. He's the beginning of all action that we have. There's no argument there. But do you see the logic that they had? It's like, hey, God's putting the imperative on us. He's saying, if there are going to be laborers, you need to be praying. There's an action. And the same thing is how they're going to interpret. It's like, if we're going to hasten the day, hasten the coming of the Lord, we need to do what we're supposed to do. Now, how do you do what you're supposed to do? By the power of God. In other words, you can't do it without God, but you begin to align yourself with his purposes. And it's responsive. It doesn't wait to be picked up and carried. It's ready. And so even though it seems to run roughshod over certain things, like, well, God has to be the one to raise up laborers. No one's going to argue that technically. At the same time, we're supposed to be praying. There's an action associated with this. He doesn't just say, don't worry, guys, I'll raise them up. He says, pray. He gives us an action. So what should we do, even though he is the one that raises up? If any of you are going to be missionaries, I'm not going to say, I raised you up. It's God that's going to raise you up. However, we all have a role to play, and our job is to figure out that role and agree with it and then do it. Instead of just saying, you know, we could super spiritualize everything and say, well, God's just in control. He's sovereign. He's overall. He does it. If he wants to reach the world, he will reach the world. Our job is to heed and to obey that which God is doing. Now, how did we even hear, hear? How did we understand? How did we catch the vision of the unfinished task? He gave it to us. In other words, he is the beginning and the end of all of this. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. 
But we need to agree in the middle and actually believe. And that belief is an action. We need to do what we know to do. 2 Peter 3. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Very fascinating scripture. Because we recognize that all these things are going to pass away. So in light of this coming reality of what is in front of us, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So you can sort of see where these Christian and Missionary Alliance are coming to some of their conclusions, because look at this word. It says, what kind of persons ought we to be looking for? So we're looking for the coming of the Lord, but also hastening which means urging forward the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we are looking for and we are hastening the coming of the Lord. Well, how in the world are we supposed to do that? And that's where if A.B. Simpson was here, he's like, I will tell you exactly how you can do that. You gain God's heart for that which he cares about in this earth. He has a longing for every soul to hear, for the gospel to spread to every nook and cranny of this earth, that every nation, tribe, and tongue would learn and heed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's gonna be A.B. Simpson's response. And we're like, how do you hasten the coming of the Lord? It's like, do you want me to repeat myself? I guess I will. And this was like his message over and over and over again. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a missionary revival that takes place. And so for us, I have to admit, in the, in the theology, the current theology of the church, I would say the coming of the Lord is not as present tense as it was in the early church or as it was in the early 1900s. I would say we could use an increase, a volume knob increase, because it's not that we don't agree with it. Is the Lord coming? Yes. <laughs> Will every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Yes, we believe it. However, we can have stagnant theology. Have you ever recognized that in your life? You can believe that God is a father to the fatherless and just know that he's going to care for the orphans out there, and you don't care at all. But you believe that it's important, and you believe that they need to be cared for, but it becomes a stagnant theology instead of a responsive theology where you're like, I see it, God, and I am moving in agreement with it. So this is, it's a dangerous territory for us to begin to transition into. I don't know if you can feel that. When I say that our theology needs to be responsive, that means whenever we see something in Scripture, we respond to it. That means when God is acquainting us with his heart and showing us the unfinished task, we say, all right, Lord, show me my role in that. Imagine that we were building something, and it was like we had all sorts of lumber, we had all sorts of tools here, and it was an unfinished task. We had an architectural design, it was called God's program, and you, know, you were sitting there and, and we asked some questions. It's like, is God building something uh, on this plot of land? And you'd say, yes, it's true. Uh, what is he building? Well, I'm sure it's going to be a beautiful house that he's building. I mean, I've read something about that in scripture. And you could know all about what's going on and never actually step up to the foreman and say, how could I be involved? Show me what I could do. And he could say, do you know how to swing a hammer? No. Do you want to learn? I do. I want to participate in what God's doing. See, God has a program, but most of us have never caught the vision for the unfinished task. 
all sorts of lumber sitting there, all the tools that are necessary. And yet we can stare at it from a distance and say, yeah, God's doing something in this earth. Yeah, praise God that God's going to build his house. But we are not responsive to the reality that we have been commissioned. Pray. Go. Disciple. Preach. (laughs) What are we doing? In other words, we can talk about it sort of like swing the hammer, lift the board, you know, carry the log, you know, whatever it is, whatever kind of house it is. I just made it a log cabin suddenly. (laughs) We have a program that is in front of us. It's an architectural design that God has given. However, our theology is often stagnant instead of active. God is dreaming a dream. He's the old man tracing his finger along the world with a burden. And we're caught up in World War II saying, well, God, I, we, have, we have problems that are standing in the way. I can't get that done. I have, for most of us, it's like, I have financial needs. I have relational issues. I have physical issues. I can't do that. You know, God, I, I, I need to eat gluten-free. If I go to Irian Jaya, I don't know that they can service that need. This is, these are our issues of the day. The smarter we get, the harder it is to actually go because we become dependent upon things. The nicer our mattresses are in the United States, the harder it is to say goodbye to them. (laughs) And so as a result, we in a sense entrench ourselves in a stagnant theology almost as a form of survival because to, to give those things up is asking too much. However, if we would begin to allow a responsive theology to take over, an action-based Christianity, that's something that changes the world. The dangerous edge, from dusty studies to dangerous places. This started in me, I should say it was reinvigorated in me. You remember how I said, you can have an intensity for the unreached, and then suddenly it can just drop off. Usually it's because you got distracted with something in life and you know, you had a crisis in life and you just lost sort of that fervor of it. And then God can just sort of touch it again. So I had uh, a man come out. He, was, he, he runs uh, Bethany Global University. Well, Bethany International. So Dan Brocky, he, uh, he's, he's over the whole thing. And we were sitting in the lake house and he was just telling me stories. The entire vision of Bethany Global is uh, to... Uh, what, what's the statement? Do you remember, Nathan, what their, their mission statement is? To take, the church to, the da- no, to take the church to the unreached and then to teach others to do the same, something like that. But then in the process of, of sharing that, he shared a story of one of their board members back in like 2008. And so he came into the board meeting and he looked around and sort of pointed his finger in each of the board members' faces. So these are guys with the right theology, right? I mean, taking the church, taking the gospel to the unreached, and then teaching others to do the same, okay? It's an action-based theology, right? And yet you can have an action-based theology and be sending people and not going yourself. It, this is another phenomenon that can easily happen in us as the church, is we, we participate for one season of our life, and then we retire, uh, to allow other people to do all the work. And uh, it's a classic sort of white-collar Christian mentality that we can just easily gravitate towards. And so this, this board member takes out his finger and is sticking it in the nose of all the people uh, in the board, and he's saying, guys, we can't just talk this. We need to live this. And then he 
you know, just sort of lowers the boom. He's saying, my family and I have sold everything and we're headed to New Delhi. We're headed to the dangerous edge. And everyone's just sort of staring back like, whoa, our board members are doing it. What does that say to the rest of us? <laughs> See, if one of us actually just rises up and says, guys, we need to do this, it actually creates a ripple effect around because everyone else is recognizing it. It's like, yeah, I, I guess I was just sort of thinking it instead of doing it. And so it does not mean that you have to go to New Delhi. It isn't the conclusion that we all have, or that you have to go to Papua New Guinea. It's the response that first says, God, I see the unfinished task. What is my role? If you want me to swing a hammer, if you want me to carry a board, if you want me to do the sawn, I don't care. I might need to be trained how to do it, but my answer is yes. Take me there. Take me to the dangerous edge. So guys, I don't know if you've seen this missionary motto of Stanley Dale before, uh, but uh, we've repeated it six times now, or more. I mean, it could be that we've done it twice in some of the messages, but it's good. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. And we have prayers that have come out of each of these, and so we're at six now. So these are six prayers that I would highly encourage you to begin to pray in your life. And so they each are matched up with one of the messages. So the first message was the legend maker, and the prayer that came out was, Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. The second message was passing on the Kasu Marzu, and the prayer was, Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. Uh, the third message was inured for danger, and the prayer was, Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. The fourth message was fretting like a lion, and the prayer was, Lord, may I be preoccupied with that, that which preoccupies you. And the fifth message was the Savior in the thicket, and the prayer was, Lord, may I uncover that which is in the thicket for my Sawi tribe. And the sixth prayer, which is today for the dreamer of dreams, Lord, may I be a doer and not just a hearer. Father, this is something that you must do in us. We are natively lethargic. We are natively focused on self and self-comfort and self-ease and self-preservation. So Lord, we ask that you would bust us out of this tomb this tomb of cowardice, of passivity, of attempting to justify our stagnant theology under the banner of it being correct doctrine. But Lord, the most correct doctrine is love. And we fulfill everything when we begin to love. And love does something. Love prays when it must pray. Love goes when it must go. Love speaks when it must speak. So Lord, I pray that you would trump all of our reasoning with your heavenly reasoning and that you would move us from being hearers to doers in every facet of our life. Please, Lord, please do this. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.